is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, the latest report card on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan from the Productivity Commission says everyone could be doing better. And the latest on the fires as conditions deteriorate, the weather heating up and the winds freshening as well. Then we had that dreadful um, row of storms with heaps of dry lightning, uh, dry lightning strikes, and we had nearly 60 fires start. Of those, about 35 have been extinguished, but we've got, uh, you know, around 20 that are still not fully out, and there's several of those are really of high concern uh, and moving, and they try to get on top of them, and then, you know, the, the conditions change, and they go again. We've got RFS support we've got aerial support heavy machinery and lots of farm fire units not a good place to be at the moment more on that shortly from the Tenterfield area, uh, but uh, in fact we'll uh, talk now to the RFS about what's happening because there have been multiple watch and act alerts in effect for fires burning in that region that we're just talking about there in, in and around Tenterfield. That seems where all the hotspots are at the moment. In the last 15 minutes, a new watch and act has been issued for a fire burning eight kilometres uh, northwest of Woodside in the Dunnybrook State Forest. There's also a watch and act for a separate bushfire burning in the Woodside area, about 17 kilometres west of Tenterfield and a third watch and act has been issued for a fire burning south of Ogilvy Drive in the Tabulum area, 50 kilometres northeast of Tenterfield for the latest uh, information on the fires and there seems to be quite a lot of them at the moment in that region. Ben Shepherd, Inspector Ben Shepherd from the RFS joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, thanks for having me on. That, so this, the hotspots around the Tenterfield area and quite a few watch and acts. Yeah, look, very much so. And as you just touched on, firstly, if, we, if we're looking just to the west of Tenerfield, there's sort of two fires that are burning on, on both on the northern and the southern side, the Bruxner Highway. Um, and that's the one in the Donnybrook State Forest and also uh, what's known as the Frost Road Fire at Woodside. So what we have started to see in the last uh, couple of hours is those westerly winds really start to pick up and start to move those fires in a more easterly direction. So there is some isolated properties that are, uh, are now uh, getting close to these fires and that's why we, we raised the, the, the fire to that watch and act level. But we are expecting across the course of the afternoon these hot, strong and gusty dry winds uh, to continue push these fires in an easterly direction. But look, firefighters are doing what they can, especially on that Frost Road fire, uh, to try and hold that fire basically along uh, Woodside Drive. So uh, look, it's going to be a testing afternoon. Um, but look, fortunately, as we move further into the week, we should slowly start to see conditions ease. Sounds like you've got a lot of people on the ground, some heavy machinery around and also some aircraft in the air, uh, uh, water bombing. Yeah, look, we've also got a multitude of aircraft, both fixed-wing um, uh, agricultural bombers, but also helicopter pilots. Uh, the large air tankers have been making runs up uh, to the north of the state today. But it's very much a focus with, as we just heard before, that, that lady talking about those lightning strikes that occurred last week. There's a, a lot of fire uh, up in the landscape up there, but these are the ones proving problematic, which are quite close to, to people. And they're obviously going to be our focus across the course of the day. And you mentioned there some isolated properties that could be a threat there. Whereabouts are they? Yeah, look, in particular, basically, first off, that Tarbon area, which is just to the east of the, of the Donnybrook State Forest. Uh, there are a number of isolated rural properties there, uh, but also for properties along Woodside Road and Log Hut Road, which is more or less on the southeastern edge of the, of the uh, fire there. 
at Frost Road. So we're just asking people, please monitor conditions. Make sure that your properties are prepared now uh, because we could see the fire move towards your homes uh, over the coming hours. So we just need people to be ready and understand what they're going to do if threatened by fire. So put into place their bushfire plans and uh, if uh, they're not uh, certain about defending the property, they should be leaving, that sort of thing. So they're, they're the warnings that are going out? Yeah, look, very much so. And look, a number of these um, properties have, have had these fires just burning to the west of them now for a few days. So, uh, look, they've been well aware that, that, that these fires have been there. We've been doing community liaison as well uh, out with those communities to try and bring them up to date as much as possible. But today is the day when it comes to weather and today is the day that poses the biggest threat to, to those properties um, as we start to see those strong westerly winds, which we could see as high as you know 50 and 60 kilometres an hour. Uh, start to whip up some of these fires. So hopefully we'll get through today without them moving too far to the east. But look, there is a real risk that we could see uh, properties come under threat over the course of the afternoon. Okay, so yeah, obviously people need to be uh, uh, looking at the Hazard Near Me app, the Fires Near Me app, and also uh, listening to ABC Local Radio for any changes there. Sounds like the weather is not con- not ideal. Is there a change on the way there? There is, isn't there? Yeah, look, there is a slight change. We will continue to see high fire danger up in some of these areas for the coming days. But by the weekend, we really could see uh, a real change in the weather. Now, at this stage, the Bureau's indicated us in our morning briefing that we could see um, some shower activity. But look, it's not going to be a, a heat that's going to be able to put a major dent in the actual issue there out in, the, in some of these areas, which are, you know, haven't seen rain now for some time or significant rain for some time. So until such time that happens, we've got that issue. Every time we see storms, we cross our fingers, hope for more rain than there is lightning. Uh, unfortunately, last week we saw more lightning than there was rainfall, and thus the issues that we're dealing with today. But look, but, as you said, if we can have people monitor that hazard near me app, look for those alerts, continue to, to listen to the radio. Um, and keep themselves informed and up to date. Yeah, and uh, the, as uh, as we heard from the Tenterfield Mayor there, she was saying that uh, lightning strikes causing these fires, and uh, obviously there's um, you know there's a lot of material for these fires to burn uh, as well in that in that region as well because of the uh, three years of wet weather we saw. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing uh, a lot of grass growth up and uh, around these areas. Now, some of these areas as well were burnt. Uh, during that, those awful 1925s or 2019-25s. Uh, but what we have seen come back through some of the understory uh, is these grass growths. But equally as well, uh, the fire that can burn over just near Tabulum, it, it is burning just to the north of the area that burned during 1920. So it is burning through uh, some fuel loads that hasn't burned for, for some time. But, but equally, over the last few weeks, we've seen fires move and move quickly through the landscape. Uh, and we just need people to be aware of that, be prepared, make sure their plans are in place and have those discussions about what you're going to do with threatened by fire. Okay, and at the moment, so three three watch and acts in that Tenterfield area is really what you're focusing on at the moment. Yeah, and, and of course, there, there are still a number of uh, other fires, uh, as you touched on earlier, just in that Tenterfield. There's almost a dozen just in the Tenterfield area yeah. that we are having to deal with. So look, we're monitoring all those, but yeah, those watch and acts is where we want those property owners to really focus in on at the moment that are close to them. Okay, and there may be some change in some of those other fires and conditions there as well. So as, as I said before, keep listening to ABC Local Radio for any changes there. And uh, uh, the, also the RFS will be on this afternoon uh, giving updates to uh, Ben Shepherd. Appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thanks again. It's coming up to 12 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. And uh, we were talking about this earlier, the Tenterfield Shire Council Mayor Bronwyn Petrie has been speaking to the ABC's Peter Sanders and uh, she says they have a number of plans in place if the conditions worsen and it sounds like conditions are worsening. Council's actually got staff today down at the Glen Innes Control Office but we also have 
um, all our machinery at the ready. We have water tankers refilling um, a, a recently installed uh, 200,000 litre tank at the Tenerfield airstrip and so our tankers are ref- uh, refilling that tank constantly because the um, aerial support we're using I think up to 40,000 litres a day of the last couple. Are you working with any other local councils nearby for additional support? Uh, no, I think they've actually got their own problems at the moment. Um, so mainly what's happening... To, uh, we, we had one fire as of last Thursday morning, um, which is sort of in my area, down the Rocky River. Then we had that dreadful um, row of storms with heaps of dry lightning, uh, dry lightning strikes, and we had nearly 60 fires start. Of those, about 35 have been extinguished, but we've got... Uh, you know, around 20 that are still not fully out and there's several of those are really of high concern uh, and moving and they try to get on top of them and then, you know, the, the conditions change and they go again. We've got RFS support, we've got aero support, heavy machinery and lots of farm fire units, uh, a heap of people working together as a team to try and reduce the impact of these fires but they've caused considerable damage. What's the current mood around the town at the moment, particularly areas like Tabulum that are being affected at the moment? Uh, yeah, well, Tabulum, unfortunately, with the wind change, the, the, the uh, fire that is there, this Ogilvy Drive fire, uh, Ogilvy Drive fire, it is um, will push eastward. So they're all on um, watch and alert preparations. The mood around town has been very sombre because in Tenerfield itself, we are completely surrounded by various smoke uh, fires that you can see. the smoke everywhere. You can see the individual fires in most cases. So, um, you know, as we all know, Black Summer fires four years ago started in Tenerfield. And uh, I suppose in one way, um, you know, we're facing them now earlier in the season again. Hopefully this time with some water in the creeks and and rivers, we've got a chance of um, uh, not getting to as bad an impact as four years ago but it's not very um not a good place to be at the moment Tetherfield Shire Council Mayor Bronwyn Petrie uh, talking about the bushfires in her region and she was speaking to Peter Sanders just a short time ago it's uh, a quarter past 12 ABC Listen podcasts radio news music and more you're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales Well, the federal government uh, should step up efforts to recover water in the Murray-Darling Basin, including expanding voluntary buybacks and doing more to hold state governments to account. That's uh, the Productivity Commission uh, that's giving a report card on the plan so far. The commission says the plan won't be implemented on time or on budget with delays inflating costs, even as climate change adds to challenges. And the commission's interim review of the plan's implementation has uh, found there's been problems there. The review also critical of previous coalition governments with what they say is weak transparency for amounts paid out between 2016 and 2019. Chris Guest is the Assistant Commissioner of the Productivity Commission and he's speaking to uh, News Radio's Thomas Ariti. And what was most alarming was that in the face of that very limited progress, there have been very few decisions taken to get the plan on track. Uh, No decisions about what's working and not working and clearly they've been needed for some time. To address that problem, we're recommending that there be considerably greater transparency and accountability about the delivery of the measures. 
one of the things we found uh, in talking to the community in our tour of the, of the basin, we visited 17 towns and talked to hundreds of people. People were very interested to know on progress uh, and found it very hard to find out what was happening. Now, even if that happens, just back to the deadline, Chris, the federal government has extended it, as I said in the introduction, 2024 to 2026, but the commission predicts a shortfall still. Why is that? It's, it's unlikely, we think, that some of the key infrastructure projects that aim to connect rivers to wetlands will be delivered even within that additional time. These are complicated projects uh, and they've encountered problems that weren't expected uh, when they were first designed. In addition, some of the really big infrastructure projects have yet to get underway. At the moment, it's expected that there's something like 14 projects will not be delivered uh, on time. There also seems to be a bit of a patchy response at a state level. Would I be right in saying, because there are water resource plans in Victoria, Queensland, South Australia and the ACT, but it seems many in New South Wales aren't in place. Is that right? What's the delay there? Yes, that's right. New South Wales has run alarmingly late in delivering these water resource plans. The water resource plans are the key instrument by which the limits on use are set has there been any improvement since the last Productivity Commission review on this? Yes. Um, although, as we say, there's been limited progress in delivering uh, new projects to increase water recovery for the environment, there has been success, particularly in the use of the environmental water that has been recovered so far. One of the things we heard consistently on our tour through the basin and talking to people was how well regarded the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder was for managing environmental flows uh, and how particularly people welcomed the local collaboration between the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder and communities when making decisions about watering where, when and how much. Uh, and it was gratifying as we moved through the basin, hearing how much the basin plan is now accepted as part of the landscape. Much of the discussion was to how to make the best use of the water that's been recovered under the basin plan. Chris Guest is the Assistant Commissioner of the Productivity Commission. He was talking about the report card on the progress within the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. That report just released. Claire Miller is uh, the CEO of New South Wales Irrigators Council. She says the current federal government is not being transparent about a range of issues in regards to the plan. She says she fears they're not even following their own guidelines in regards to the buyback process to uh, safeguard uh, agriculture. And she says uh, it's it's uh, interesting that the latest round of responses to the Senate have been very critical of the amendments put forward in regards to the water bill. Well, that's correct. We've been through the 118 submissions that were available and up on the website. And very clearly, you know, 61% of the submissions overall do not support this bill. And that rises to 79% of submissions from within the basin. And we're also seeing the Productivity Commission today saying they don't think that even with an extra three years that um, what the plan, the plan can't be achieved even, even with an extension in time. Yes, they are saying that. And what they're also saying, contrary to perhaps some of the headlines that we're seeing, is that the government should be focusing on covering that shortfall in the Sidland 605 supply project. That they should be looking at covering that shortfall to the benchmark 2750 recovery target before they then start looking at trying to get the 450 gigalitres. 
And they're saying in that that they should also, in that water recovery strategy, while stage buybacks might be part of that mix, that water recovery strategy should also include all of the options and communities that have been put forward by communities and by industry. But they're also having a go at the previous New South Wales government too in not signing up on, on these plans uh, quickly enough and dragging the chain in uh, you know, knowing how much water is actually out there. If you're referring to the water resources plans there, yeah. um, we do have the register of take that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority does. I know that's not the official water resources plan. Now, we are as frustrated as everyone else about the delays. This should have been done by 2019. You know, it's frustrating to us that you know, <laughs> New South Wales has dragged that chain. It's also really frustrating to us that they've dragged the chain along with other states, on doing those Sidland supply projects. The Productivity Commission also says that um, a lot of the infrastructure schemes don't seem to be working and even they won't be ready in time either to, to save water and to stop flooding and those sorts of things. Some of those infrastructure plans are way behind time. What's your response to that? Well, there are a number of these projects that are way behind time. Now, some of it's because governments have dragged their heels, but others are things like drought and floods that can slow down works as well. We'd urge the Commonwealth Department and the State Departments to get their skates on and get moving on these things. The delays are not acceptable. The other thing is we've just heard today that um, uh, Tanya Plibersek, the Minister, was saying that many, many more people have um, requested selling their water to the Commonwealth than they need to to match the amount that they that they want in the first tranche. What's your response to that? Yes, I understand that she's been oversubscribed for the Bridging the Gap buyback. But she's not saying she's going to buy it all. You know, people put in these expressions of interest because they know, in fact, that the federal government is stupid enough to pay them over the odds on what the actual market value is. I would say that there's probably a large proportion in there that the government would not consider to be for money. But also, they're supposed to apply all of this to three criteria. One of them is value for money, one of them is environmental utility, and one is socioeconomic impact. Now, they've been totally untransparent about exactly how that criteria is being applied. But if that's being, if in fact they are taking that into account, I'd be very, very surprised if all of the water expressions of interest that have come in somehow magically meet those criteria. So you don't think there's been enough detail given there? No, no. And that's been the problem with this entire bill and the government's approach. They keep saying, trust us. It's okay, we're going to do these buybacks according to these three criteria. But they've never actually released the criteria, so we don't know exactly how they're working this out. They haven't produced any information on other options. They keep saying options other than buybacks from the table. But actually, our legal advice is very clear. The bill is structured and defines water towards the 450 in such a way that it can only be buybacks of one description or another. It can only be water access entitlements taken out of the consumptive pool. Now, if that's not the government's intent, which they keep saying to us, then make it clear in the bill. But shouldn't people, if they want to sell, be able to sell? I mean, a lot of people using it sort of for uh, succession planning or, you know, they're moving back into dryland agriculture. And we've had a few people on, the, on our program saying just that. They, they, they need it for their retirement plans. They've already got a market that they can sell their entitlement into to fund their retirement. The only reason they're selling it to the Commonwealth is because they know the Commonwealth's stupid enough to pay more than the going market rate. But then that creates a market distortion. But the bottom line is any farmer who wants capital for succession planning or for retirement or 
to switch from an irrigation farm to dryland farming, they've already got a market. They can already sell their entitlements into there. The difference with it going to the Commonwealth Government is that it's gone from production forever, and that means all those communities that are left behind, they're the ones who suffer the, the loss of the jobs, the loss of the services associated with the production in production. Claire Miller, who's the CEO of New South Wales Irrigators Council. It's uh, 25 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, he's been described by his peers as a living legend in the wheat breeding field. Professor Richard Trethown has been announced as a recipient of this year's Farah Memorial Medal. His contribution to wheat genetic improvement has and continues to benefit the Australian and global industry. And his research is said to benefit not only New South Wales and Australia, but had real impacts on the global pursuit of food security. I asked him how he felt about the announcement that he's won the medal. William Farah is uh, somewhat of a hero, I guess, of mine. I mean, he, 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 his work kick-started the, the wheat industry here in Australia, made it viable, really, um, with the release of Federation 120 years ago, in 1903, that uh, variety was released, and uh, it changed the game. Um, he brought diversity from India and combined that with European diversity and created a a wheat that was adapted, truly adapted to Australian conditions and helped and helped escape the ravages of the rust diseases. To, to win this award, I, I feel as a, as a wheat breeder, as someone who's been a wheat breeder and now more recently a, a wheat pre-breeder in academia, is, uh, is, a, is a special honour. And you've been travelling around the world and, and looked at uh, wheat breeding programs and been involved in all over the world. Tell us a bit about that. Well, yes, I, I have worked at the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Centre, uh, that's CIMIT for short, in Mexico, and I led a global program there to develop wheat for, the, largely for the developing world and for rain-fed environments, the, the, the tougher environments. But of course, there are all sorts of spillovers and that material, that program, has also had a significant impact here in Australia over the years. And what sort of changes in technology have you seen since you, since you started all those years ago? Uh, well, when I started out, at the, it was sort of the dawn of the molecular age. I've seen over the decades that technology mature. I think we all thought it was going to be revolutionary at the time, but with all these technologies, it takes a lot of time to iron out the kinks. You know, molecular technologies, technologies are just fully integrated right across wheat breeding these days and, and, and managing the enormous amounts of information, huge amounts of genetic data, huge amounts of environmental data, um, huge amounts of what we call phenotypic data or plant response data and making sense of all of that in enough time to be able to make proper selections in the, in the field is such a challenge. Now, we've also heard about the productivity of wheat in Australia over the years. I mean, it's, it's got a pretty good record. I mean, it's, uh, you know, percentage-wise, every year it's been, we've seen the productivity increase. How much of that is due to uh, wheat breeding changes? Uh, well, it's a really interesting question. Now, while we've seen that productivity increase, and I, and I believe it, it really has through to the turn of the century, it's actually much harder since, since the turn of the century, over the last 20 years, to to see those changes, to see that progress, that steady progress, because our environment has become a lot more variable. Uh, it's really amazing. We've had some of the best years and some of the worst years on record since the turn of the century. Now, I think grain growers have done an amazing job 
at managing this increasingly variable environment. I mean, the adoption of conservation agriculture was, was revolutionary. Farmers farming moisture absolutely was a game changer. And when you combine that with advances in genetics, you, you, we're keeping grain growers in the game, if you like. Um, you know, new genetics for improved heat tolerance, new genetics for managing limited moisture, new genetics for, for, for better disease resistance, all of this stuff is making a real difference. And the commercial companies here in Australia, I think, uh, are doing a great job at, uh, at keeping ahead of the, the changes in the environment. So is climate change or global warming the next big challenge? Oh, it's, it's been a challenge. I, I think here in Australia it's been a challenge for decades, to tell you the truth. Um, certainly when I started out, drought and heat were big issues for us to consider. Drought and heat are still big issues for us to consider. It's just that the, the variability has become greater. I mean, the swings have been, become greater. The, the, it, it's amazing how, trying to... to I, I think as a grain grower, looking at this environment, trying to turn a profit um, across such a wide range, such, such an increasingly variable environment, it is a challenge. But technology is helping. I mean, agronomic technologies and genetic technologies combined, the combination of both, and I don't think you can tease out which component of advance is genetic and which component is really due to just, due to just better agronomics. They're intertwined, really. But that has, I think, kept our farmers profitable in, in an increasingly hostile environment. And how much more hostile will it become? I think that's, uh, that's the question. Well, that will mean, yeah, I mean, that's that whole question about um, pushing the limits of agriculture. Some of the climate scientists have talked about that, you know, beyond any sort of uh, being able to mitigate the climate. Oh, look, look, it, it's true. And one of the things that we're doing, we have a project funded by the Grains Research and Development Corporation to try and improve the heat tolerance of wheat, for example. So trying to lift that critical temperature at which the whole photosynthetic mechanism shuts down. And to do that, we actually road test. So we, we actually assemble the genetics here at Narrabri, put together what we consider to be the, the optimal gene combinations to manage that heat load. We then test that around the nation, but we also test it in the Kimberley at Kananurra. And you might think, what, why on earth are we doing that? I mean, no one grows wheat in Kananurra. It's far too hot. But when you look at the most dire predictions of some of the climate models, yep, Northern, northwestern New South Wales, southern Queensland may well be that environment in the future. So we're using it as a future environment to, to road test our new genetics just to, see, just, just to see how good it is. And even though we won't need necessarily that level of heat tolerance in the short term, it may well become very important in the medium to long term. Professor Richard Trethowen, who is Director of the Plant Breeding Institute at the University of Sydney and he's this year's recipient of the Farrah Memorial Medal for Wheat Breeding. It's 28 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Shortly we'll have the latest on the weather. We'll have another update on the fire situation shortly as well and uh, heading off to a mining conference to find out about some of those critical min minerals and uh, the uh, impact of China as well on the mining industry too. So all that and a whole lot more coming up. But before we do anything else, we'll get some news headlines now from Adam Story. He's just walked in, so good timing. <clears throat> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. Thank you. Yep. Good work. A <laughs> uh, bit of argy-bargy this morning over this letter that was signed by the group of former Prime Ministers uh, supporting Israel. 
that was all the former living Prime Ministers except Paul Keating, uh, who said he refused to sign it because his accusation is that it was uh, actually drafted by uh, a Jewish lobby group, uh, the Zionist Federation of Australia. Uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has been refused to refuse to be drawn on the matter and says Paul Keating's refusal to sign the statement is a matter for him. Uh, in Gaza itself and, um, and Israel, Israel says it's going to intensify attacks on the Gaza Strip with more infantry and artillery units entering the territory. I think there was yesterday was probably the heaviest day of sort of ground fighting that we would have, uh, would have seen along with the, uh, the continued bombardments. They've, uh, the Israeli forces have been seen on the main road linking northern and southern Gaza. Uh, now, last night, uh, Israel was actually claiming that they've actually managed to cut the city in two, so you can't get from north uh, to south. Uh, the US, meanwhile, says it's confident there'll soon be a significant increase in aid going into Gaza. Um, the White House National Security Spokesperson says the first phase will involve up to 100 trucks a day uh, entering Gaza. Uh, meanwhile, the US has described a Russian claim that, uh, remember that story yesterday where uh, an Israeli aircraft uh, was landing in Russia and it, it was, uh, the tarmac was stormed. Uh, the uh, Russia has claimed that that was organised by Ukraine and the West. Um, yes, just a, a lot of actors just standing by just to storm an airport in the middle of everything that's going on. It's like, yeah. And fairly remote. And fairly, too. yeah, we're talking Dagestan here. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, wherever that is, uh, and uh, the Russian president says the incident was part of an attempt to spread chaos in Russia, as if there's not enough chaos mm. uh, that needs to be spread <laughs> anywhere. Right. Uh, back home, detectives have arrested a 24-year-old man in relation to a home invasion and fatal shooting in the Hunter. Police are alleging that it was uh, a home invasion uh, gone wrong. Uh, 25-year-old Zach Davy Scott was shot and died at the scene. Uh, a 52-year-old woman also suffered minor injuries while members of the man's family witnessed the incident. They arrested a 24-year-old man at Boomerang Beach south of Foster this morning and he is expected to be charged with murder. Uh, big problems up in Queensland with their bushfires. They've had 53 homes there lost since that fire broke out on the Western Downs. Fifth, is it 53? Yeah, up to oh, 53 now. Crikey. Yeah. Um, emergency warnings still in place uh, and extreme fire danger forecast for the region uh, again today. Hopefully things are a bit... Although it's very windy uh, out there at the moment. I'm sure you have details of that shortly, mm, but uh, mm. it is very windy out there. And uh, New South Wales is going to start paying uh, police recruits more than 30000 uh, an extra $30,000 during the training period in a bid to attract more people to the profession. Uh, a 16-week study period at Goulburn Police Academy has been inaccessible for many people who can't afford it um, uh, after months with uh, no income and in a bid to increase police numbers. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be a bit of financial support. So they're going to pay them to be yeah, pay, at training? Pay the, pay the 16 be, weeks yeah, of training? pay them to do yeah. this sort of, I suppose, it's... Um, this more uh, police theory, I suppose, <laughs> rather than uh, practical. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a bit of practical involved, I think, at the Goulburn uh, Centre. Probably more practical than theory, yeah. Mm. 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 Okay, well, yeah. yes, okay. But so this, this is uh, for a specific... That's a long yeah. time to not be yeah. paid and oh, to move absolutely. into the... Yeah, yeah. It makes it very hard for people to do that sort of yeah. thing. Especially when you're... You know, I mean, obviously, a lot of the people from Goulburn are actually normally based in Sydney, so... Well, that's it. It's mm. Yeah, it's... Uh, coming from everywhere mm, to go. Exactly, yeah. yeah, that's right. 
All okay. right. Well, we'll uh, we'll listen with interest at one o'clock to the latest updates yeah. on various mm. things. All lots happening today. Oh, lots, 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 lots. Yeah, lots, lots. <laughs> better get a cup of tea. Not good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> get a cup of tea. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, coming up to twenty-four minutes to one here on the Country Hour, and uh, we'll find out what's happening with the weather details. You on Park at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So, first of the fire situation. So, warming up and windy in, for the fires at the moment, which is uh, not ideal. Um, that's right. Not really ideal um, because of a change moving through the northeast quarter of the state today. And with that, uh, ahead of these changes, we expect hot and windy conditions. And so this heat combined with the fresh westerly winds uh, are creating extreme fire dangers uh, in many parts of the northern inland and the northeast quarter, including the New England region, so where we see quite a number of active fires. And uh, it looks like some of the fires has gone to uh, watch and the act level, including Frost Road and the Soyuz Creek and so on. But uh, these fires mostly concent- concentrated around the uh, Tabulan, but perhaps uh, RFS may shed more uh, intel on this. But on the other hand, as far as the fire weather is concerned, it's not good. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, once this cold front and associated trough moves through with the cooler south to southwesterly wind changes behind, uh, and this change is expected to reach the far northeast corner of the state by tonight. And behind this, we expect a significant easing of fire danger conditions, uh, especially uh, New England, where we expect just moderate fire dangers you know, from uh, tomorrow onward, uh, although uh, yeah, northern slopes and the northwestern may still remain um, in high, range, uh, high fire dangers up until tomorrow or possibly on Thursday. Um, but, uh, good, what good what about the rain, that, though, Juan? Is there much rain on the way to dampen the uh, fires? Ah, uh, good question. Yes. Okay. Then jump jumping into the rain. Uh, actually, we are not expecting uh, much significant rain for today, and it, at, at least for the next couple of days. Although today there is uh, some risk of uh, severe thunderstorms along the north coast with this change as well, but probably not much rainfall, more of winds and hail risk if there's any. And then. Perhaps towards the end of the week, as the inland trough deepens and feed moisture across the eastern half of the state, we may see some development of rainfall in, in the form of showers or thunderstorms, but not by rain, but more with, uh, with the showers and the thunderstorms. So this will be a kind of a mixed signal for people in the northeast because uh, generally widespread 10 millimeters of rainfall each day, and, you know, just say starting from, say, Friday and continuing into Saturday and Sunday, uh, possibly uh, reaching up to maybe 30 millimeters locally by, you know, um, by thunderstorms may help out, you know, help firefighting effort and moist the ground and as well as putting out some of the fires. But on the other hand, the lightning strikes associated with the storms may trigger new fires as well. So this will be a kind of a mixed uh, mixed signal for the firefighting effort. But anyway, uh, some useful rainfall might be on the way um, towards the latter part of the week. And if that happens, mostly from Friday onward and possibly continuing into the early part of the new week. Um, But again, 
due to the nature of shower storms, it will be more of a localised nature rather than widespread. Okay, so uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like a huge amount of rain, but I mean, there might be some, you know, uh, sort of uh, 10 millimetre each day type rain, so that should help to dampen some of those fires and uh, hopefully the uh, the windy and uh, hot conditions will, uh, will temper as well. Uh, Juan, thanks for that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's coming up to what, 20 minutes to one on the Country Hour. It's time to get more uh, fire weather information. ABC Radio Emergency Information. Here's the latest on the fires. Multiple Watch and Act alerts are in effect for fires burning in the region around Tenterfield. In the last 15 minutes, a new Watch and Act has been issued for a fire burning 8 kilometres northwest of Woodside in the Donnybrook State Forest. In this update, I'll also update you on the fires burning in the Tabulum area northwest of Tenterfield, as well as the Frost Road fire, which is also in the Woodside area. But first, there's a Watch and Act in effect for the Sawyers Creek fire burning in the Donnybrook State Forest, fire spreading in an easterly direction towards isolated rural properties on the western side of Tenterfield Creek and the Bruxner Highway. People in the area of Tarbon should prepare now. The fire is currently uh, 129 hectares in size and is being controlled, but westerly winds will push the fire in an easterly direction and conditions are forecast to deteriorate. Properties in the Tarbon area on the western side of Tenterfield Creek and the Bruxner Highway should prepare now. North of the Bruxner Highway and west of the New England Highway may also be impacted. Residents of the, of, of the area of Sunnyside should monitor conditions and stay up to date in case the situation changes. There's also a Watch and Act that, uh, that's for a separate bushfire burning in the Woodside area, about 17 kilometres west of Tenterfield. People in the area of Woodside Road and Log Hut Road should prepare now. The fire is burning at advice was burning at advice overnight, but the warning level has been elevated due to an increase in fire activity on the southeastern corner of the fire ground. The fire is also spreading in an easterly direction under westerly winds and conditions are expected to deteriorate. Smoke and embers may be blown towards Tenterfield. If you're in the vicinity of Woodside Road and Log Hut Road, be aware that the fire may impact your property and make your final preparations now. If you're in the vicinity of Sunnyside and Mount Mackenzie, you should continue to monitor the conditions as well. A third Watch and Act has been issued for a fire burning south of uh, Ogilvy Drive in the Tabulum area, 50 kilometres northwest of Tenterfield. Properties in the vicinity of Plains, Station Road and Ogilvy Drive should prepare now. Conditions are expected to deteriorate further today under a forecast of extreme fire danger. Westerly winds will push the fire in an easterly direction towards the Clarence River and Clarence Way. Residents in the areas of Cyril Smith Circuit, Pagans Flat and Louisa Creek should continue to monitor conditions and stay up to date. There are a number of fires burning in the area around uh, Tenterfield this morning. If you're close to any of them and you wish to uh, leave uh, early, the Tenterfield Showground will be open until 6pm and the Gleninus RSL is also open for residents as well. So just recapping, a new Watch and Act for the Sawyers Creek in the Dunnybrook State Forest, 8 kilometres northwest of Woodside. A second Watch and Act has been issued for the separate bushfire burning in the Woodside 
Woodside area west of Tenterfield. People in the area of Woodside Road and Log Hut Road should prepare now. The fire burning south of Ogilvy Drive in the Tabulum area northeast of Tenterfield has also been elevated back to Watch and Act this morning. Properties in the vicinity of the Plains, Station Road and Ogilvy Drive should prepare now. And for more information, of course, go to abc.net.au slash emergency, the Rural Fire Service website, or download the Hazards Near Me app. And of course, as I've been saying quite a lot lately, keep listening to your local ABC and your next update will be about uh, 1.15pm or a little bit earlier if the situation changes. So uh, stay listening to your uh, local ABC radio. It's a quarter to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. As Anthony Albanese heads to China to talk with the nation's biggest trading partners, mining may well be on the top of the agenda. Some of the big trade issues have been addressed recently, including barley and wine. But there's plenty of heat over recent decisions by Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board to block Chinese deals to buy Australian mining companies. Miners from China and all over the world are gathering in Sydney this week for the IMARC conference. David Clawton straight to Ming Wong from Chinese-owned Hawaii Cobalt, Peter Arkell from Global Mining Association of China, and Mark Q from the China Hanking Holdings, which owns large gold assets in WA, and he begins the conversation. Okay, the Chinese company is listed in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange with the gold oil and the pure oil producer, but in Australia we mostly focus on gold. And so most people would think that Australia, and Australia is a big producer of iron ore, but you do have a big production in China as well. In China we are not a bigger in terms of production, but we are one of the most profitable iron ore producer for more than 20 years. Hanking is always a privately owned group, and then at least in Hong Kong started in 2011, so it's always private. And so what do you see about the opportunities for your for this company in Australia and, and how uh, it can benefit both Australia and China? In Australia, we see Australia has the biggest potential for mining growth, have an expertise in exploration and mine development. We, we're using Chinese financial strength to working in Australia, but we're using 100% Australia staff. Yeah, and a great time for gold. Record prices. Yeah, it is, and we always believe in gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, in times of crisis, it yeah. is the safe haven. Yeah. All right, and uh, and uh, Ming, your company is involved in cobalt, so a lot of the emphasis here is about critical minerals. What uh, what is your company doing in Australia? Uh, in terms of critical mineral, uh, what we're doing in Australia is basically uh, looking for partnership and uh, opportunity, particularly in relation to the lithium sector. Lithium? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating area, isn't it? And one that, from a Chinese perspective, there have been some, some blocks on Chinese companies getting involved in Australian projects. So uh, tell me more about what your company is doing to, to mine lithium in Australia. Yeah, I think in the uh, lithium space or in the critical mineral space, uh, it is quite different from probably some of the other commodity we used to see in Australia. Uh, in this particular space, because it's relating to the battery um, product and the market, a lot of it is about collaboration, about partnership, about uh, procurement and offtake. Uh, Australia uh, represents a large part of the lithium hard rock market. Uh, at the moment, it's close to about 40, 40%. 
uh, and uh, those products are basically export uh, to different market for production of lithium battery materials. Right. So basically, China or international company will be buying lithium uh, material and produce it into different products for the battery producing. So uh, is that still the raw material coming out of Australia and being processed in China? Uh, it can be raw material coming out of Australia, but it can also be processed material out of Australia. For example, uh, in Australia, we're talking about uh, uh, you know building up a hydroxide plant in different parts of Australia, yeah. um, servicing the, the, the industry globally. Where do you think the opportunities and the blockages are in terms of... Because as my understanding is that investment in mining in Australia from China has diminished quite a lot during the pandemic. So what do you think of the opportunities now? Where's it heading? I'll start with you first, Mark. Uh, for the gold sector, relatively easier. We have always been able to obtain the firm approval. But uh, because there is a firm approval, always, uh, you know, when you try to acquire another project, it's always... Uh, uh, takes time and uh, it's, it sounds disadvantaged. And Ming, there, there is a, a focus for every country now, isn't there, on being self-sustaining, like self-reliant on critical minerals. So does your company help with that or is, is it a problem because you're exporting your, your, con- your product back to China? Uh, I think we are actually not uh, selling most of the product to China. China is a big market, globally speaking, uh, for uh, battery material. However, um, uh, like our company as well as a lot of the other company, what we're doing is that we actually have processing plant, we're a project offshore, uh, overseas, outside China, as well as inside China. So a large part of the material that we produce uh, or, or process is actually outside China and serve the market outside China, uh, totally internationally from that perspective. And where do you think lithium is going in Australia? I mean, it's, it's in hot demand, isn't it? I think uh, it will continue to be in hot demand. Uh, Australia has advantage of having a hard rock producing mine, um, you know, uh, start producing uh, uh, a few years probably earlier than a lot of the other market like Canada or, or, or Africa. So it continue to have that advantage. Uh, and also, uh, I think the Australian mining law and jurisdiction is well established to support um, the continuing growth of Australian lithium market uh, supplying overseas. If I add one point, I think Australia to be to maintain competitiveness in the approval process, environmental mining approval should be quick. Otherwise, it will disadvantage Australia globally. Mm. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. So what's your take on on where Chinese investment in Australian mining is at now? Well, I think there's there's been difficulties. You know, there was going back uh, to when um, uh, MMG and uh, and others started first investing in Australia back in 2010 or thereabouts. It was a much more um, friendly environment and an encouraging environment for, for Chinese companies to come into Australia. But then over the last uh, five, six years, it's gradually got more difficult. So where we may have found them coming into Australia to invest, they've been looking elsewhere, going to uh, Latin America or Africa. And is that because there have been a couple of knockbacks, like the Foreign Investment Review Board has blocked a couple of, of lithium um, deals in Australia? Absolutely. I don't think there's any, any question that, you know, from a, a risk point of view, do you, do you invest a lot of money exploring or, or you know, working up a partnership with somebody 
then to find that at the last minute, that last hurdle, it ends up falling over. You know, mm. Definitely. I think but the, the point, I think, isn't it, to, to protect Australia's own capacity to produce those minerals and process them here? And, and maybe there are obviously concerns about China's involvement in Australia in some of those critical minerals areas. I don't see why we would be uh, why we would be concerned about that. That doesn't seem to be uh, something that we, we need to be concerned about. You know, Chinese expertise in, in particularly in the production of uh, of critical minerals is far ahead of anywhere else in the world. And uh, if we can bring Chinese investors into Australia to help to develop those, mm. they bring that IP, and we can actually be onshoring instead of being a, a dig it and ship it uh, nation. We could be actually becoming much more. Uh, involved in downstream, and the Chinese could bring that expertise into Australia. You know, you could, you could have some uh, regulations. If you look at um, at some of the things that Wang Ming's company has been doing, Huayo Cobalt, they're they're investing heavily in uh, in production now in um, in Indonesia. Massive investments, multi-billion-dollar investments, and they're doing that with Ford Motor Company in Indonesia. Uh, and that couldn't happen in Australia. Well, of course, it could happen in Australia, but it it, it needs to be a needs to be an environment where Australia says, you know, we, we're interested in doing downstream, we're interested in your, your IP. That's Peter Arkell from the Global Mining Association of China. Let's go to markets. First up, Wodonga cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to just over 1,500 cattle. And 535 cows helped make up the numbers. Quality was quite good. However, the market at times was quite erratic, with a big price variance across grass-finished heifers and veal. Heavy export cattle were in reasonable numbers, but competition fell away quickly and prices did drop 20 cents. Veal found some legs jumping 60 cents for quality calves. Prices ranged from 155 to 326. Trade heifers were back 10 to 30 cents, 155 to 215. Feeder heifers, medium weight, slipped 10, 145 to 178. Trade steers, very few to quote, sold 18 cents cheaper, 190 to 236. Heavy steers, one nine and bullocks, 194 to 226. Heavy cows were back 7, 178 to 203. Leader type C's 3, 150 to 172. And the better bulls, 175 to 208. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers fell this sale with agency yarding just 27,750 head. There was 19,650 lambs penned and quality continues to be very mixed with some good lines of fresh finished lambs available along with those plainer secondary types. The usual bars are present and competing in a firm to better market. There's 5,700 new season lambs penned and prices held firm to $4 dearer. Trade weight lambs 20 to 24 kilos sold from 100 to $124 a head. Heavy lambs, 24 to 26 kilos, ranged in price from 124 to 140, while the extra heavy sold from 134 to a top of 150. Old lambs followed a similar trend, holding firm to better, particularly on the fresher shorn types. Trade weights, 20 to 24 kilos, selling from 66 to 116 a head. Heavy lambs, 24 to 26 kilos, sold from 113 to 125, while the extra heavy weights, over 26 kilo, ranged in price from 126 to a top of 158. The balance of the lambs and 8,100 head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. Carcore cattle. 
Numbers were backed by 373 yarding and 1575. It was a good quality yarding with good numbers of well-finished grass steers and heifers along with good numbers of cows. There were also good numbers of young cattle to suit the trade buyers and only odd pens to suit the feeders. Young cattle of the trade were up to 20 cents dearer with prime vealers selling to 220. Prime yearlings sold from 140 to 237. Feeder steers were 7 cents cheaper on quality while feeder heifers were 6 cents dearer. Feeder steers sold from 168 to 228, while feeder heifers sold from 135 to 180. Ground steers were 4 to 10 cents cheaper, while ground heifers were 10 cents dearer. Prime ground steers sold from 175 to 215, while prime ground heifers sold from 162 to 220. Cows were 10 cents dearer with the 2 and 3 scores, selling from 125 to 162. Prime heavyweight, heavyweight cows sold from 155 to 190 to average 177. Bulls were 10 cents dearer, with heavyweight selling to 188. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. Let's go to Gunnedah Cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers fell by 1,000 for a penning of 1,350. Very mixed quality cattle. Yearlings and cows for the most part. Plenty of lightweight, lighter conditioned cattle. The usual buyers were in attendance. Increased demand and reduced supply saw lightweight steers sell to deer trends. Vealers 279 cents a kilo. Sea muscle yearlings under 330 kilos, 192 to 258 cents. Little bit quality related change. The medium and heavyweights, 168 and two, to 224 and 190 to 221 cents respectively. Heavy trade were a shade dearer, 210 to 221 cents. Dearer trends through the yearling heifers with lightweight sand D muscles, 92 to 195. Medium and heavyweights, 168 to 192 with trade to 210. Heavy steers to process in limited supply were dearer, 170 to 220 cents. A strong cow market saw heavyweights as much as 20 cents dearer. Planer conditioned medium weights in greater numbers, mostly firm, 118 to 153, while the well-finished heavyweights made from 130 to 100. 88 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Canada. Inverell cattle. Good afternoon. Inverell numbers reduced by 384 head to pen 890 mixed cattle in a generally dearer market. Regular exporters, feeders and backgrounders in strong competition. Steer winners in strong demand 150 to 242 with heifers 20 to 40 cents better making to 180. Both categories to restockers. Light feeder steers 30 cents better 180 to 250. Medium weights firm 168 to 224. A reduction of 12 cents a kilo for heavy feeders over 400 kilos. Light heifers to restock back 15, 90 to 170 with quality of factor. Similar quality reductions for medium weights to restockers 132 to 150. Medium feeders, were, medium feeders were dearer to average 171 cents. Processor drafts were mixed for the better types 138 to 186. Cows resulted in dearer trends. Restocker cows 78 to 134 to be 10 cents dearer. Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. And scone cattle. Good afternoon. Scone agents yarded 731 cattle, an increase of 217 head. Overall quality slipped. There were some bigger runs of calves on offer, a plainer lineup of wieners, with some handy runs of heavy steers off the crop to suit the exporters, and around 100 cows offered. A full field of regular buyers at the rail, with added interest from local restockers and afar. General market trend of a positive nature. Milk calves sold from 130 to 252. Light restocker steer wieners 130 to 244. Medium weights 178 to 190. Over 330 kilos to 218. Light restocker heifer wieners, 6 cents dearer, 100 to 176. Medium
30 might yielding steers to feed on 146 to 200 up up 26 cents heavyweights to 202 prime b muscle steers the local trade 282 to 300 whilst heifer counterparts made up to 316 heavy grown steers and heifers over 500 kilos of process up to 224 cows were keenly sought medium weight two score cows dearer by 22 80 to 175 whilst prime heavy three and four score cows dearer by four 130 to a top of 188 cents angus barlow for mla at scone news time